This morning, you guys are in for a special treat. Just a little bit less than nine years ago, we had our first service here at Neighborhood Bible Church. But what some of you may not know is just down the street, about two miles away, another church had their first service, which is Peninsula Bible Church in Willow Glen. And we've had great relationships with them. They're doing awesome things just a few miles north of us and are reaching people as well. And we've felt like we're sister churches in a way for a lot of years. And uh, so we have the privilege of having one of their pastors, Mark Bucko, who's a a friend of mine as well, coming and sharing with us uh, this morning. So Mark, uh, go ahead and come on up, brother. It's been my delight to know Dave and Ben for some time. Love and appreciate those guys, and I'm confident when I say that you're shepherded well in this church community with these guys, dear men who love the Lord profoundly. So thank you for your welcome. Thanks for the chance to be here. I bring you greetings from the far north, as Ben said, about two and a half miles. PBC Willow Glen, we, uh, we meet in Willow Glen, and we did start around the same time, and it's a delight to be co-laboring together to minister to this community, both saints and those who don't yet know Jesus. So thank you. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word. Um, we're just so thankful that you recorded all these things for us, that you put the sweep of salvation history down through uh, those you inspired to capture your character, to capture your work, to capture the goodness that is you and how you are calling out a people for yourself, how you weren't content to leave us lost uh, in the brokenness, Lord God, and dysfunction of our sin and the brokenness of this world. So speak to us now, we humbly ask. We confess to you, Lord, that unless your spirit moves, and speaks to our hearts, Father. We are, uh, we're dull to your truth, but we know that as your spirit moves, you can feed our souls and encourage us and draw us closer to you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been spending the last couple of years camping out in the book of Matthew, which is just a thrilling account of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's an absolutely brilliant piece of writing. How this tax collector from Bethsaida or thereabouts north of Galilee, how in the world he was able to write such a brilliant account of Jesus' life and ministry, I don't know. But it's absolutely, absolutely wonderful. And one of my favorite scenes in the book is immediately as Jesus ends his great discourse that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's my understanding from Ben that you have recently spent some good time in the Sermon on the Mount. That's fantastic. And so hopefully this will be an appropriate text. I'd like to call your attention to Matthew 8. We're just going to look at the first four verses, a little scene, a little vignette, as Jesus descends the mountain after ascending the mountain to really unfold the essence and the depths of the law, of what God's character truly is like and what the law is really all about and what God is doing. And so understanding the core essence of the Sermon on the Mount makes the following scene much more poignant and powerful. There's there's a great deal of logic to Matthew's order, the way in which he unfolds the story. Order matters in Scripture. So Jesus now has gone up the mountain. 
He's unfolded the essence of the kingdom of heaven. And it's not Jesus' new prescription for admission to the kingdom, but it's a description of life surrendered. It's very important for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount. And, of course, when we think Sermon on the Mount, where do we immediately go? We tend to go to the Beatitudes, right? The blessed ours, right? Which is just the, that's really the, control, the controlling phrases, the controlling principles of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's so critical that we understand that Jesus is not giving a prescription for life. Sort of, this is the true prescription to please God and make God happy and to win his favor. No, it's a description of life that is surrendered to the gospel, that is surrendered to Jesus. So it's a description, not a prescription. Oswald Chambers says, The Sermon on the Mount is not a set of rules and regulations. It is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us. I love that. May the Holy Spirit get his way with us. Maybe surrender and let the Lord God work. You see, Jesus is the only one to completely live out the essence of the law, the true depths of the law, pleasing God. And then he delights in inviting us into his work, attributing his work to us, his obedience, his faithfulness. And so the Father then views us through the lens of Jesus when he looks at us. It's not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon Jesus. And so a life surrendered begins more and more to look like the Sermon on the Mount. And a church community surrendered begins to look more and more like the Sermon on the Mount. And guess what the world does? The world says, oh, that's beautiful. There's nothing like it. So that's the Sermon on the Mount. So here we go. Jesus has now finished unfolding the glory of God's character, the true essence of God's kingdom, the radical internal and heart transformation that the gospel brings to one who surrenders. So the question is, now what does that look like worked out? What does this look like in real life? To be up the mountain and sitting at Jesus' feet, like at the Sermon on the Mount, it's one thing to hear it and understand it uh, and at a rational, theological level, but then how does it look uh, acted out, lived out in the wake of that understanding? So what do our lives increasingly look like as Jesus' words take root internally? Well, Matthew 8, and I commend the whole chapter to you, very much in the light of this context. When you read Matthew 8 in the context of what's come before it in the sermon, it sheds a whole new light on the way in which Jesus begins to act out the kingdom of heaven. He has three surprising encounters. Uh, we'll look at the first one today, and I'll assign you to read the rest this afternoon or as the week goes by. So he has three surprising encounters with people who are not supposed to be a part of the kingdom. They're not supposed to be part of this great thing that Jesus is doing. They're not the people who qualify. They're not anyone that somebody would want when ramping up a great movement. They're not the people to get. They're not the people of influence and power and strength and gift. They're certainly not the people to get as your followers if Jesus is to be taken seriously. So the question is, if Jesus really wants to change the world and inaugurate the kingdom of heaven, why is he bothering, people with, bothering with people like this? Especially in the wake of this unbelievable, transcendent discourse opening up the essence of heaven. These people are not the game changers. But nevertheless, we see with whom Jesus interacts. So we pick it up with verse 1, with a very simple statement by Matthew, but very telling. Matthew says this, When he came down from the mountain, 
great crowds followed him. Now, one of the things I've noticed about Matthew is he's very good at transitioning from one scene to another. He gives these little cues that uh, sometimes just sort of move the story along, but other times contain important information. So attend to those when you read Matthew and you see these transitions. When you think about it, all the transitions Matthew could have used, he chooses came down from the mountain. He could have said when Jesus finished up. Or Jesus then headed back to Capernaum, which of course was his hometown. He headed back toward the sea. He walked home. But Matthew's transitions should stir us to think about something. Where have we seen this before? Where have we seen a man come down from the mountain after engaging with the law of God? Moses, exactly. Now, Matthew is the most Jewish of all of the Gospels. His book contains more references to prophecy and the Psalms and other parts of what we call the Old Testament to communicate to the Jewish community of his day, this is the one. You know all those signs and symbols and words about the Messiah who's coming? This is the guy. He's the one. And let me tell you what it looks like. That's what his gospel does. So you're right. We should be thinking about this great teacher who, uh, at the beginning, by the way, of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, you may recall, Matthew tells us, Jesus went up the mountain, right? Now he frames it by saying Jesus came down the mountain. And like you say, it's very evocative of Moses, because what did Moses do? Moses went up the mountain, received the law from God, then he descended the mountain to teach Israel how to live as God's people. Jesus, in contrast, has gone up the mountain. The people have come with him. On the mountain, Jesus has unfolded the law. He's unfolded the essence of God's character to the people. Now he comes down the mountain to begin to live it out, to begin to live out his calling and call the people of God to live out their calling. So Jesus comes down, and this king now, who's unfolded this phenomenal insight into the kingdom of heaven, now humbles himself to live and interact with the people. And Matthew points Israel to Jesus and says, this is the new, the better, the greater, the ultimate expression of Moses. You see, Moses was a type who pointed toward the ultimate Messiah. And Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the complete fulfillment of Moses, of Abraham, of King David, and all of these in the Old Testament who had messianic qualities, who pointed to the Savior. Jesus is the complete fulfillment of this one. So the new Moses has given this radical and paradigm-shifting teaching. It's, as you know, it was a major shift in their theological understanding so the question is, will people turn away or will they enter and follow? And uh, Matthew says they follow in droves, by the hundreds, by the thousands. But who really responds and enters in? And what are Jesus' priorities as he continues this ministry? And that's where Matthew takes us now as we meet, of all people, a leper. The first person Jesus interacts with in the wake of the sermon is a leper. Verses 2 and 3. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, the translation I used, which I think is the ESV, it's a little bit of an unfortunate translation. 
it tells us that the leper knelt, and the Greek word is really bowed down. He came and he bowed down before Jesus. He paid homage. He prostrated himself before Jesus. So you see the man's approach? He's worshiping. So right away, we get the appropriate response to Jesus unfolding in fulfillment of the law on that mountain. Not to seek to try harder. Not to say, okay, I'm going to be like that. I'm going to transform myself. No, the proper response is to come and bow down. Bow down at the feet of Jesus. And shockingly, it's a leper. Now, it's stunning that a leper would approach anyone, right? I'm, I would imagine you probably know the fact that a leper is unclean. He's ostracized. He is at the very fringes of the community. In fact, he's not here. She is not even considered to be part of the community. Lepers were considered accursed by God, the lowest, the least of all people. They were forced out. They were required to have disheveled hair and clothing to cover their face. As they went around the town, if they got anywhere near people, they had to yell out, unclean, unclean, and people would part like the Red Sea to give them space. How incredibly shameful and degrading for these people to have to yell out, come Here comes one who is unclean. So they couldn't have been more rejected. And the rules for lepers with rabbis were even more stringent. You were not allowed to get within six feet of a rabbi. Lepers were considered the living dead. And of course, a rabbi could not get anywhere near something so unclean. And most remarkable in this passage we're looking at today, do you know it's the first miracle that Matthew details in his gospel? Here we are all the way to chapter 8 before he details a miracle. Now, he's alluded to other miracles prior to this, but this is the first one where we're taken into the scene, where we're given that intimate perspective. It's like like the movie camera has zoomed in, and we're right there standing next to Jesus and the leper surrounded by all these crowds of people. So on the heels of the sermon, Jesus' first interaction is of one who is of no account, has no social weight, is reviled by the entire community. And I wonder, I wonder if Matthew doesn't see himself, perhaps, in this leper. Think about Matthew's background. He was a tax collector. And as a tax collector for the Roman Empire, he was considered a traitor of his people. He was reviled. He was hated. Though physically strong, he was considered almost leprous, unclean. You don't go near this guy except when you have to because Roman law requires it. And a tax collector was one who was likely to defraud his people because he was required to produce X amount of income for the Roman Empire, and then his salary was whatever he could get from people beyond that. So, of course, anytime there's a tax interaction, people don't want to pay, and Matthew says, you've got to pay. I've got to feed my family i got to line my pockets. And so, for one who is physically well, he couldn't have himself been more ostracized in the community because of his betrayal. So I wonder if Matthew sees himself as one, akin to the leper. And like the leper is about to be, Matthew has been restored to the community. He's been taken from the fringes and brought home to the community. And that's why we love to gather as the church, right? 
We gather to worship, but we love being a part of the community. We need community. We need each other. We need the encouragement. We need the fellowship. We were created to be relational. Why? Because God is relational. So I suspect Matthew sees a lot of himself in that leper. So the leper comes, and he bows in worship, and then he's given speech by Matthew. And in biblical narrative, when you're reading biblical narrative, anytime someone is given speech, that's very, very important. Because when you're given a voice, you're given weight and importance. You ever in a situation where you don't feel heard, okay, but then you do feel heard? What does it do to you? It lifts you up. It makes you feel important, like what you have to say matters. And so Matthew gives this leper speech. He calls Jesus Lord, first of all, recognizing Jesus' power and authority. And then he speaks with great respect. He says, if you want, Lord. There's no presumption. And with great honor, he says, you can do this, Lord Jesus. I know you can. I know you have the power. And he expresses astonishing confidence in Jesus, especially given that healings of lepers are very rare. The ancients considered the healing of a leper to be as impossible as raising somebody from the dead. They truly were considered the living dead. And he comes and expresses astonishing confidence in Jesus. And what humility. You know, none of this name-it-and-claim-it stuff as if we're in control, if, we're, if we can just you know, pray hard enough and long enough with enough repetition and say the right words and have the right attitude. None of that baloney. He comes and worships in humility. He says, you're sovereign, Lord. I wait on you, Jesus. What a beautiful model of worship and prayer, a model of response to the essence of the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't that great? The most unbelievable discourse in the history of humanity unfolded by the Son of God. And the first person to respond and interact with Jesus is a leper. And then he gives this beautiful insight on how to approach the Lord. Lord Jesus, I know you can do it. And I love you. And regardless of what you decide to do in my life, I worship you. Because I recognize you are the Son of God. So based on his words to Jesus, it's hard for me to imagine that the leper hadn't somehow heard the great sermon, that perhaps he had been on the fringes of the crowd, or perhaps like the bleeding woman earlier in the, in the uh, Matthew text, he's, he's perhaps hidden himself uh, from view and, and uh, infiltrated the community. And if so, he took a big risk. And I think this sermon has stoked his faith, and he bows before the sovereign will of the Lord coming out of Great respect and honor and confidence in Jesus. And you see, he knows that Jesus' will is greater than his desires. Jesus' will is greater than his own physical state. We cannot presume on God to do our bidding. No matter how noble the outcome seems, God is sovereign. And his will is more important than our desires no matter how noble they may be. And this, this leper gets it. If you will, you can, Jesus. And so Jesus then responds immediately, acting out of the realities of the sermon. Now, the crowds all around, uh, absolutely no doubt, expected a particular response from Jesus. They would expect Jesus to recoil and gasp and give the man a verbal reprimand 
fact of the matter is, given the law, Jesus could have called for a stoning of this person for violating the law and threatening another with uncleanness. But you know what he does? He reaches out and he touches the man. And Matthew uses the same word for hug. If I hug Big Ben and Matthew were describing it, he would use the same word. So this was no mere light little pat. This was a grasp, maybe even a hug of this man. It makes me think of the leper that uh, St. Francis hugged. He knew that God was calling him to break down the barriers and hug this one who was unclean. And it changed his life. Changed his life by obeying God in that way. And so with one gesture, Jesus breaks down the barriers between the clean and the unclean. And it's a, it's a metaphor for the barrier of removing the veil, the barrier between heaven and earth, between the clean and the unclean. What happened at Jesus' crucifixion? The curtain was torn. The divide between the clean and the unclean. So Jesus is actually acting out here his crucifixion. Dying in order to redeem. So now God has restored the relationship with his people. And Jesus initiates. He touches the leper. And even before the leper is healed and restored to the community, you see what Jesus does? Jesus restores his humanity. This rabbi, this great rabbi, who's revolutionizing Israel, bringing a whole new understanding of God, reaches out and touches him and restores his humanity. How beautiful. It was a humanity stripped away by the will of the community. And Jesus makes him fully human again. And you see, that's what defines humanity, true humanity. To be touched by and known by the living God. It's how we were created. I think of my friends Jen and Dave. Uh, they have a favorite surf spot in Santa Cruz. And they've befriended a homeless woman who kind of hangs out there and sort of lives in that general area. And one day they had gotten out of the water at the end of a surf session and they had some snacks and a soda in the car. So uh, they asked her if she wanted some. She said, sure. So they gave her some snacks and had a little chat. And, and as she walked off, a man with his son in the car drove around the corner, rolled down his window, and he said, hey, keep our parks clean. Don't feed the bums. She's not a bum. She's not a bum. She's a beloved child of God. A human being. And we need Jesus' continual touch to remind us we're not bums. We're humans. And we're beloved. You see, we've got leprosy, my friends. We're sick with sin. But Jesus comes when we bow down before him and he reaches out and he grabs hold of us and he says, I want you to be clean because I love you so much. We have great value and acceptance and adoption and importance to him. His relational character longs to live in a relationship with us, the way in which we were created to be. And so you see, my friends, as followers of Jesus, we get to be emissaries of the same grace to the world, the same grace that has pulled us from the fringes and restored us to the community, the community of heaven. And I want to ask you this morning, who's hurting Who's lost? Who's lonely in your world? Perhaps at work, in your neighborhood, at your school, on your teams, in your family. Who are the outcasts? 
Oh, we have so much work to do, my friends. So many people to love. Touching the outcasts. Jesus took great risk here. Remember, he was constantly balancing the realities of his ministry and unfolding his ministry with the realities of the controlling authorities who wanted him out of the way and quick. And Jesus was not just violating cultural norms, but he was breaking the law, and he did so purposefully. He didn't need more controversy. He didn't need more conflict. He didn't need more threat to himself. But you see, bringing life is costly, isn't it? Bringing life is very costly, and it's intention with those determined to find life in their own way, their human way. And sadly, so much of the human way of finding life is elevating ourselves above others, so we have to try to push people to the margins. Because otherwise, in our flesh, we don't think we have value unless there are people in the margins. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. You find life by bowing down before me and letting me restore you. And so the sketch that you see of Rembrandt's, uh, Rembrandt's artistic creation here, it really captures the worship, but I don't think it quite captures the fullness of the touch. See, the kingdom of heaven has come for those who are outcasts and who know it. And Jesus is ready to grab a hold of anyone and all who will come, no matter how sick we are from our sin, no matter our past, how shameful, how deep our addictions like the leper, we are healed from the diseases that separate us from the community and, most importantly, separate us from the living God. And the healing is wonderful and the pain begins to fade, but greater is the blessing for those who are restored to the land of the living, never to be separated. And that's our friend, the leper. And that's us. Jesus now has some instruction for our friend. Verse 4, Matthew tells us this, And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, once again, Jesus baffles us with the unexpected. After this incredible, intimate, healing scene, he says, Now go fulfill the law. Go show yourself to the priest. First of all, say nothing. Are you kidding me? The man's just been healed of leprosy, and he's supposed to say nothing. I love Jesus' enigmatic statements like that. What in the world is he talking about? But he tells the man, I want you to proceed in compliance with the law and the sacrificial system. Give credit to God the Father of whom Jesus has been teaching. And here's what I think this scene reveals. You see, Jesus isn't interested in credit and attention for the spectacular. He's not interested in a big show. He's interested in restoring humanity to a relationship with God. And so by directing the leper to go to the priest, what is he doing? He's saying, I want you to experience the full earthly expression of the heavenly reality. I want you to be restored to the community. And how do you do that? You go to the priest. The priest examines one who's a leper, certifies him unclean. I'm thinking the priest can't even find one of those scrolls, you know, the one that has the form for lep leprosy uh, cleaning, you know, because it never happens. So he probably had to write one up on the spot. He didn't have one in his file drawer. But Jesus directs the man to get his certificate of health, fulfill the law, and be restored to the community. And so it becomes a picture of the deeper reality 
that restoration has come to this one, to the community of the eternally living through the Son of God. So Jesus, as he so often does, revitalizes and restores the law, and he fills it out. He takes us to its deeper reality, to the heart of God. And he shows how it is healing and points to him. Meanwhile, he's not interested in the spectacular to validate his ministry or enlarge his ministry. He's not interested in being a mere wonder worker. Physical healing, of course, restores the body, but the gospel restores the soul and brings life, and that's Jesus' intent. And that's the model of ministry for us, isn't it? You know, we like the big and the flashy, big movements, lots of marketing, lots of media, big numbers, big headcount, big dollars, big results. And Jesus is content to heal one leper at a time. To touch one lost soul at a time. And infiltrate the community with life. You see, all life is turned upside down with Jesus. Turns everything upside down to our expectations. In God's economy, the clean now makes the unclean clean, not the, way, not the other way around. So that means we can move into the unclean places in life. My wife and I raised our kids in Mountain View, and our first little home there was just a few blocks off of El Camino. And this was pre-internet days, and so porn shops were still, you know, visible and, and operating here and there. And there was one not too far from our house on El Camino. And there was a little house behind, and I, and I thought, I wonder if the proprietor of that lives in the house, and that's, that's his or her business, I assume. Was it him? I don't know. And I thought to myself, you know, I wonder if that person has kids. What if I met him at my kid's school, at a school function? Would I take him out to dinner? Would I invite him to my house? Would I spend time with him? And I had to honestly say, I, I don't know if I would, Lord Jesus. Make me the kind of man who would. Make me the kind of person who will spend time with the leper. So I want to ask you, who are the lepers in your life today? You see, that's what Jesus is asking us to do, to reach out to the unclean, those who are banished from the community. We get to be ambassadors of his grace, one leper at a time. Over the years, I've known many Christ followers who want out of a bad environment. We all know people who have really difficult work environments. Maybe you've got a co-worker who makes life miserable for you. Maybe you've got a boss who just seems to hate you and would be delighted if you decided to not show up one day and just went away altogether. Many environments where it's tough to be a Christian. And, and we so fear persecution that we often want to run, don't we? We're not used to that in our culture, in our world. And sometimes we deem a place toxic and we want out. And certainly God sometimes does want to remove us for one reason or another. But I would offer, I think often we, we move too quickly. Rather than waiting to see what God might do. Because if we won't stay, who will bring light? If we won't infiltrate to be salt and light, who's going to do that in your company, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your club, on your team, in your organization? Who will point them to Jesus if not us? I have a good friend who was uh, teaching in East San Jose in a charter school. 
And it was a horrible environment. Administration was antagonistic. The school is run, of course, by test scores. You have to get the test scores if you want to get the money. Well, the sad part of it is, is that teaching kids, especially elementary kids, how to get test scores is not the most effective way to educate them, to teach them what they really need to know. And my friend, who just loves kids, and he's a brilliant guy, he, he so struggled with this environment, this constant pressure. He's the, he was the best teacher at that school, and yet he was getting hammered because his kids' test scores weren't up there. You know what he did? He hung in there. He hung in there for four years in this tough, toxic environment. And finally, God called he and his wife to Seattle to take care of, of her parents. But you know what happened this last year? At the end of the school year, which was his first not being at the school since the school started five years ago, they had an end-of-the-year ceremony. And the administration said to the kids, uh, who would you like to be here as a special guest? You guys get to invite a special guest. Who would you like? And almost to a kid, they said, my friend, my buddy. And so they, parent, the parents took a collection, and they bought him a plane ticket to come down and celebrate the end of the school year. Salt and light. Because he stayed. He didn't run. He stayed in that tough place to see what God might do. Charles Spurgeon says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with, their, with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We were unclean, my friends. And if you know Jesus, you know that you and I have been healed from our leprosy. We were untouchables. Someone told us about Jesus. When I was a kid, there was a faithful Sunday school teacher or two or three. I don't even remember them, but I know they told me about Jesus. And they said, you need him, and here's why. And when I was 10 years old, the Lord grabbed hold of my heart because somebody was faithful. And if you know Jesus, you've been touched by the clean, never to be, never to be made unclean again. So now you can move into the tough places. The unclean places. Make relationships. Love people. Speak truth. Point them to Jesus. So in closing this morning, I want to point you to just a couple of truths as we finish up our text. The first is this. We were all unclean lepers. Jesus has condescended to touch and to heal and restore the community, us to the community and the land of the living. Amen? How great is that? Do we recognize how sick we are apart from Jesus? You know, it's easy for us to start thinking, you know, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I need a little Jesus help, but I, you know, I, I got a good portion of this. Jesus says, no. No. You were on the fringe, hopeless apart from me. Donald Hagner, in his Matthew commentary, says, there is a sense in which leprosy is an archetypal fruit of the original fall of humanity. It leaves its victims in a most pitiable state, ostracized, helpless, hopeless, despairing. And it is the ultimate purpose of Jesus to heal every malady without exception. I agree. Leprosy, you see, is a metaphor for our sin. And our sin pushed us to the fringes. We were outcasts, and now Jesus has brought us home. 
And I don't know about you, but when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I can feel pretty unclean and unworthy when I read that great text. But we're in good company with our friend the leper, the one who Jesus healed. And he's ready to heal us. And you see, that's the renewal of the new covenant. It's not up to us. We can't do it. We're as helpless as that leper. So in response, faith is more than just a general belief in God. You see, faith in Scripture is that specific trust in Jesus and His ability to help us with our deepest problems. Whether that help includes healing and elimination of the physical, emotional, psychological challenge or His constant companionship and care and help in getting through this life with the difficulties that we face, making it to the end with our eyes fixed on Jesus and the destiny that is ours. You see, that's the beauty of the gospel. That the end destination is secure. We don't know what it's going to look like getting there. It's going to be tough. It's going to be windy. We're going to have to cling to Jesus. But like with a leper, he will grab hold of us and bring us home. We can learn so much from this leper. And I think he gets it so much more than perhaps even he realizes. And in the end, whether or not he was healed of his leprosy, he had Jesus. And so do we. Jesus is all we need. And his healing and earthly restoration then become a metaphor for the greater reality of his spiritual healing. Sometimes when we bring our needs before Jesus, we experience healing right away. Physical healing. Sometimes not. But in God's sovereignty, we can trust that the healing is coming. The ultimate healing, the ultimate restoration. And like the leper, we're immediately restored and given a hope and a future. Invited into the community of the living. And that's why we gather together to celebrate. and Be reminded who we are. To be edified by singing these great songs, by hearing from the word, by praying together, by fellowshipping with each other. And that's what sustains us. That reality sustains us in this broken and hurting world. Second thing I want us to dwell on this morning, second truth, is you see, my friends, we are now called and we are equipped to love in Jesus' name. Being his hands and feet in reaching a world full of lepers, touching and inviting in again to the land of the living. That's why you have spiritual gifts. And I have a lot of people say to me, well, Mark, I don't know what my gift is. Or, Mark, I just, I don't, I'm not an evangelist. I say, you don't need to be an evangelist. How do you function? Where do you find that you're drawn to care for people? Do you have gifts of wisdom? Maybe, maybe you find that you're just giving great insights. Maybe you find you're giving great encouragement to people. Maybe you just love to serve and care for people in practical ways. Maybe people are just drawn to you because you're such a lover of people and people feel safe with you. Use your gift. Enter in. Move toward the lepers. While the world cowers from those who are untouchable and unlovely and considered toxic, we have the privilege of moving toward them with the grace and love of Jesus. So as the church, we must be both up the mountain, sitting at Jesus' feet learning, like when we come together on Sundays, at your community groups and so forth, where we allow Jesus to transform us, we meditate upon Him and His Word, and then we descend into the valley. We begin to live out the realities of the gospel, rubbing elbows with people, 
being about the work of love and truth in a world that is so desperate for each, applying our transformation to bring life to the community. And in the end, we need to know, in the end, it's not our performance, it's not our success, it's not the worthiness of our approach, but it's the worthiness of the one we approach. I read a recent quote, or I recently read a quote from Mother Teresa, who was visited in the midst of her uh, ministry in Calcutta. And a man came to meet this legendary woman and see her ministry. And he was overwhelmed by the poverty and disease in Calcutta. And he came and he saw Mother Teresa's humble ministry in relation to the size of the problem in India. And he thought, this is it? This is the legendary ministry of Mother Teresa? And he said to her, how, how do you, I appreciate what you're doing, but, but doesn't it get discouraging when the problem is so enormous? And she looked at him and she said, you know, God doesn't call me to be successful. He calls me to be faithful. She's right. We're called to be faithful in the worlds in which Jesus has placed us. And it's about the worthiness of the one we approach, the worthiness of our Jesus. Because he's the only one who can win for us and win for humanity readmission to the community. And as Jesus lays hold of us, he will not let us go. He enters physically into our lives and he makes us his. He will not, he cannot slough off what has become his, what he has adopted. So when Jesus reaches out and he grabs hold of your heart, he's not playing, he's not fooling around. He has claimed you and you are his own and that cannot change. So Jesus' miracles are far more than just exhibitions of power. They restore the gift of shalom and wholeness, fullness, contentment, well-being. And the restoration to physical health that we see in the Gospels is simply the outward manifestation of the deeper, more real, inward reality of restoration. Renewed membership in the people of God. Forgiven, accepted, adopted, assured. Eternity of glory in the presence of God. So my friends, I want you to know, I'm willing to bet that many here today know Jesus. But I'm also willing to bet that inside of you, there's that nagging voice that still says, you're not good enough. I don't know if Jesus really fully accepts you. You've got to get better. You've got to try harder. There's that area of life, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that Jesus' work is big enough, powerful enough for that. It's a lie, we're all lepers. And we deal with the echoes of that reality in our fleshly selves. But Jesus says, I delightfully grab a hold of you and you're cleansed. Now I want to give you the freedom to live like it. So what's your uncleanness? What is your shame? If you don't know Jesus, it's time to come to him. If you do know Jesus, be reminded you're healed. You're healed. And ask God to let you experience the fullness of that reality, even today. Will you pray with me?
Father, thank you for this stunning reminder of the healing that is ours in you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you condescend to grab hold of us. That you do not recoil, you are not put off, you are not disgusted with our sin. But in fact, you love us in spite of it. And you delight in cleansing us, giving us the wholeness for which we so deeply long. May that reality sink ever deeper into our souls, even today we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.